Our hymnology, our hymnology is a reflection of our theology. Our singing is a clear indication about our belief in God and His precious Word. Our God, He is alive. Our God reigns. He is everything to me. Hymns like these and so many others that we have sung through the years, they encourage us. They help us to encourage each other. I stand in awe of you. How great thou art. In Christ alone my hope is found. You know, I stop and think about how our singing is a reflection of all we believe and hold dear about our great and awesome God. And I think about the gospel in one verse. Many scholars tell us it could well have been a hymn, and who am I to argue? It most certainly would have made a good one. But I know this. Every hymn we sing contains truths from the gospel in one verse. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul concerning conduct, character among God's people. And really a key word throughout Timothy and Titus, but one that we'll see quite frequently in 1 Timothy especially is the word godliness. The people of God love God so much they want to be more and more like Him, more godly. And when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that we, if we want to be godly people, need to emphasize doctrine or instruction. The charge to teach no other doctrine we really cannot have a vibrant, saving relationship with Jesus Christ without being interested, vitally so, in doctrine. In a day where doctrine is often disparaged, not thought so highly of, the people of God who want to be godly will stress healthy teaching. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. A word that summarizes what this chapter is about is worship. Godly worship. Worship that is enthusiastic and is based upon instruction from God's will. Talk about a wonderful combining of the mind and the heart. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Man, I got to tell you, it's going to probably be downhill after that singing, all right? Nothing can encourage a preacher more than singing that is so heartfelt. 
what preaching has already been done tonight by you and teaching. When we think about this, look at chapter 3. Godly leadership. Godly leadership is what is emphasized by the apostle in this chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, elders. Men of maturity, elders. Men of oversight and management, bishops. Men of heart, they are shepherds. Keep in mind, Timothy is at Ephesus. Keep in mind, Paul addressed the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, 17 through 38, using each of those terms. Chapter 4. You get to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, and what we think about here is godly service. Exercise, discipline yourself to godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Follow after godliness, Second, uh, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. The doctrine that accords with godliness, 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. Look at 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 deals with relationships, godly relationships. What do God's people look like as far as their character and conduct? Godly doctrine, godly worship, godly leadership, godly ministry and service from chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Godly relationships. When people come into our assemblies, they should see that. God-honoring relationships. Look at chapter 6. Godly priorities in the face of what is not profitable, especially 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5, and in the face of stuff or things or the material, or wealth and money. God's people are to be known as people of character in how they view the truth and how they relate to the things, the possessions of life. Now, using something of a funnel effect, we have looked broadly at 1 Timothy And 1 Timothy is the book in the New Testament that has the gospel in one verse. And while there are many passages, one might say are really a depiction of what the gospel is all about in one verse. I dare say no one will produce a better one than we're going to study tonight. The funnel gets a little more narrow. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, a chapter about leadership. But notice how things unfold. There is a discussion first of elders and deacons, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Then there is in verse 14 a purpose statement. 
why I am writing. When you see that in God's Word, it should grip your attention, and I would suggest that you often mark it in your study. He is writing this. What he says about leaders is crucial because leaders have an important place in relating to the church. A church without godly leaders is a church that is really not honoring God. But then notice what he does. He says the leaders of the church serve the church. And then he goes on to say the church serves the Lord. See 1 Timothy 3:16. The church serves him. Friends, I want you to know no person is really healthy, no person is really alive, no person is really sound who doesn't have a vibrant living relationship with Jesus Christ. One may be as straight as a gun barrel, but just as empty inside. One can believe a lot of good things, a lot of right things, but do you have a vibrant, true relationship with the Lord? Are you in Christ? Now you look at 1 Timothy 3.16. It's breathtaking. In trying to preach the gospel since I was 13 years old, this passage has amazed me, has astounded me perhaps more than any other because in six lines more is said about the gospel than most people will say in their lifetime. It is the gospel in one verse. Interestingly, each line begins with a verb and ends with a noun. And while there are a few questions about the meaning, the overall idea couldn't be more clear. It's as if we've got a panoramic view of what God has done in Jesus Christ. From the mind of God to the coming of Jesus to the exalted Christ throughout all eternity. And nothing in the world is more important than having a vibrant, living relationship with Jesus Christ. Like is so often true of Scripture. We can look at things from a variety of angles. So I want to look at 1 Timothy 3.16 tonight from three angles, from three perspectives, because each is so precious in seeing something from 1 Timothy 3.16, this gospel in one verse, that all of us can only say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned, unclean.
You look at 1 Timothy 3.16. He, God, manifest in the flesh. You continue looking at the passage, justified, vindicated by the Spirit or in the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed in the nations, believed on in the world, received up, taken up into glory. Let's consider the first approach. Let's consider all six lines analytically and consecutively. You got that? There's a lot of analytical people in this assembly and we think consecutively. Let's do that. It says, manifested in the flesh, the incarnation. God came down from glory and put on humanity. He came here to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21 through 25. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, 14 through 18. As we look at this, manifested in the flesh, what a unique aspect this is to Christianity. The rest of the religious world I don't think has anything comparable God came down, he became human and dwelt among us. Next, it says vindicated in the spirit or justified. Two marvelous words, whichever word you might have in your translation. And here's the idea. If you wrote down incarnation, write down the word resurrection. Here, Those who think analytically and sequentially, you have his coming, now you have his resurrection. Continue, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1, 3 through 5, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. And while you've got the idea of being vindicated in the Spirit, can refer to the Holy Spirit who raised him, Romans 8, 9 through 11. Or it can refer to the spirit that was returned to the, the flesh. You know, the body without the spirit is dead, James 2. That in the resurrection, God's putting his spirit back in that body. I don't have any doctrinal qualm with either position, just to tell you the truth. I think both are so. The incarnation and the resurrection, and he's only got two lines so far. Line three. Seen by angels. Attestation. Attestation. Angels attest to Christ's identity throughout the New Testament, to his birth... Luke 2, 9 through 14, to his resurrection, Luke chapter 24, to his ascension, 
an eventual return. Acts 1, 1 through 11. Scene of angels. Fourth line, fourth statement. Proclaimed among the nations, the gospel goes to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 7, 9 to the world. Colossians 1, 23. The Great Commission proclaimed among the nations. Number five, the line believed on in the world. Let me give you this. You have incarnation, resurrection, attestation, proclamation, right in the the passage. Then you have believed on in the world identification. Identification. And then taken up, received up into glory. Exaltation. Glorification. That is a pretty amazing way at looking at this passage. And think about how many songs we sing that refer at least to several of these elements. But let me stop. I think that's a great way to look at 1 Timothy 3.16, but I want you to know it's not the only way. Here's another way. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3.16 in pairs. In terms of pairs, look at what happens when we consider 1 Timothy 3.16 in pairs. The first two pairs are flesh and what? Spirit. Think there's a relationship there? I do. Look at the second pair of words. Angels and the nations. Right? The spiritual realm, the material realm. The third pair of words. What's mentioned? You'll see the world and glory. The world and glory. Those are three pairs that nobody can top. That's some kind of hymn if this was a hymn. Because you see, Jesus is revealed by his incarnation and resurrection as the Son of God. Jesus has been witnessed by the angels and the nations who have responded to the proclamation of the gospel. And finally, the realms, the world and glory. 
That's a really good way to look at 1 Timothy 3.16 and to kind of let it sink. You know, the thing about some of us is we get pretty set that this is the only way to think about things. And I want you to know that sequential way that I looked at initially. That's mighty good. But there may be something else to see there. Now let's do it one more time. Everybody ready? Now let's put this into two pairs of three. Two pairs of three. There's six lines in all. Let's consider this together. The flesh, the spirit, and angels. That's pretty well a good synopsis, a summary of Jesus coming to this world. The next three statements, the nations, the world, glory. Those three statements are what the people of God should be all about concerning Jesus, the nations, the world, and the glory of Jesus. It may well be that there are people here tonight that need to think about their relationship with God. You cannot be healthy, you cannot be sound without a vibrant and living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't. I know this. The day comes when we will all stand before the one who was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, Seen by angels, the one proclaimed in the nations, believed on in the world, and received into glory. Listen. Are you ready? The songs that we sing will either be a great encouragement to our hearts or souls, or they will indict us and bring out our guilt and our need to respond. On the other side, how we all should long to see the one manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed in the nations, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. I conclude by going back and looking just a little bit at verse 14 and the introduction to this passage in verse 15. Notice three descriptions are given of God's people. Description number one, 
the house of God. You know, we might be talking about a structure, but I think the text, while it can show that, indicates far more than a structure. It has to do with people who inhabit. God's family, we would say. It really is people who make a house a home, a family. And the church is God's family, Ephesians 2, 19. 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19. Notice the next thing said. It is said in the passage, the church of the living God. People of character and godliness are part of God's family. They're part of the church of the living God. The church Jesus built. I am here to tell you there's only one church that the gates of Hades can't stop. And it's the church of Jesus Christ. Third, in looking at this passage, the pillar and the ground of truth, Ephesus. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen, because Ephesus was where the temple of Artemis was, a magnificent structure known for its pillars which could be seen from a great distance. The church is the pillar of truth in the sense that we hold it high and solid for everyone to behold. The pillar. But the text also says the ground. A solid foundation. Hold the gospel high. Hold the gospel because it's terra firma. It is a solid foundation for all of our lives. Next. Now he introduces this verse. And because I'm backwards, I give the introduction in the conclusion. But notice what Paul says. He says without controversy. He makes three remarks about the six statements that are going to follow. Without controversy, beyond a shadow of any doubt, I am persuaded... This is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Without controversy, it's so. And then one of the neatest little words, great. In the original language, magos. Without controversy, no doubt about it, great. We ought to be a singing group of people because we have a great message and a great God to sing about. And then he speaks of the mystery. Found 22 times in the New Testament, this word is. 
used with reference to what had been hidden in prior times, but what has been brought out now. Kind of like a military secret that has come to fruition. Here's the plan. And we will call the plan Singing Redemption's Song. Great is the mystery of godliness. And notice where he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Catch this, brethren. He immediately goes to Jesus. If we are going to be healthy and sound, we must be a truth-loving people, but we are a truth-loving people because we are a Christ-centered people. A person can love what's true without really loving Jesus because you like to win arguments and fuss. But a person can't really love Jesus without loving what is true. May God help us to be people who love Jesus. And that causes us to love what is true. If there's one here tonight who's not a Christian, oh friend, we would ask you, why not respond to this great God? You have so much to live for and to sing about because of the gospel. You can come to Jesus through faith, repentance, and baptism and be added to his church. If you'd like to study these matters more, I'll assure you there are plenty of people here at university who would love nothing more than to sit down with an open Bible and to discuss the greatest thing in all the world. We have a song in our hearts because of Jesus. And we'd like to share that song with you. And for people who are Christians... The world can be hard, can it? Many have remarked a number of times how difficult the last year has been. We should ever keep a song of praise in our hearts. God was good in 2020. He will continue to be good in 2021. And we, as his people, should be thankful. May God bless us. Let us stand and sing.